0: Hi, hello and welcome back to a new episode of Two Teaspoons of Positivity. The date is the 20th of March and the time is one thirty-six am EST. Now I, I may sound a little excited <laughs> and that's because I am recording after two weeks? Yeah, two weeks. I apologize for the gap, that was my birthday and the week preceding the week leading up to that and the week after that are not exactly the best weeks So I'm glad that that's over <laughs> and, and And okay, so today is the International Day of Happiness It was initiated by the UN in 2012 On 28th June 2012 So yeah, this feels very thematically appropriate and what else? What else? Oh, right. I, I finally had a therapy session uh, this Thursday, and I am supposed to have another one this Sunday. Yeah. So, I am I am doing much better. <laughs> and I, I also shared the podcast with my therapist. <laughs> so, on the off chance that she's listening. Hello, ma'am. How are you? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let's let's get to the stories. Okay, so I will be covering this week's stories and last week's stories as well, because I found some interesting stuff in the past week. Okay, right. Let's start. Sorry, I was thinking about something. I got sidetracked. Okay, so our first story comes from Spain, and Spain has agreed to a trial run of a four-day working week. So every Friday, Saturday and Sunday are just off. No one has to run home after 6 or 5 to start their weekend. Okay, so the story says, um, I'm reading here. Advocates of a shorter working week have long argued that it would bring many benefits to society including boosting productivity, improving equality and reducing reducing emissions. In Spain this week oh Spain this week became the first European nation to be swayed by the idea and has agreed to a trial run of a thirty two hour work week with firms that are interested in the experiment. Interested in the experiment. Never mind. Details of the trial are still being fleshed out. Of course, including how many companies will be involved and how long the trial will last. However, the Spanish government is reportedly considering covering the costs incurred by participating firms if there are any costs, that is, as they switch to a shorter working week. Employee pay will be unaffected, which is great news. <laughs> because company cause companies could easily do that. Just dock a week's worth of pay. Because of this. Okay, so we have a statement here from Inigo Erehon of the left wing ma, ma spy party. No, so this person proposed the idea. They said that with the four day with the four day work week we are launching into the real debate of our times. It's an idea whose time has come. Hmm. I like it. <laughs> it seems interesting and I think even if uh, okay so on the if you don't look if you don't um, consider the details of this idea it would be easier to dismiss it by saying that oh so uh, you're only working for four days you're missing a whole day of productivity right but I think it would balance it would create more balance between the days of and the days that we are working. Because right now we are working for 40 hours and then we get 48 hours of rest, right? (laughs) But even in in those uh, 48 hours, we have to get stuff done, right? We have to do grocery shopping, we have to do laundry and other chores and we might need to step out of the house and get some stuff done. So it's not exactly a restful weekend for most for most people. So I think having an extra day would at least provide an extra 24 hours where people could calm down, unwind and prepare themselves for the for the next week. And there's also a, a lot of middle ground that can be reached here. Like instead of saying that okay, Uh, we're adding an extra day off they could say that it's four days working and then companies could uh, ask their employees to work from home for one day so that way productivity won't be hampered as much at least uh, as much as it might have if the entire day was off and the person still gets to stay at home and start their weekend in a more gradual manner i think i am not really aware of the details of this but yeah it's an interesting concept and i think we will need that going forward taking especially considering how extreme the temperatures have become i think uh, a lot of nations will be switching to either completely working at night like arizona does or somewhere in the middle of this whole debate. This is a really good story. I, I kind of want to move to Spain because of this. <laughs> I would like to move to Spain. I, mean, I just need. I, I would like a certificate before I do that shows that I know Spanish as well as as much as a native speaker. I don't have that yet. I'm still working towards it. Anyway, let's move on to our next story. Am I moving too fast? I think I might be moving too fast. So I should... Okay. I think I have centered myself. I'm not sure. Anyway, let's keep pushing forward. So... Oh God, I'm scared of butchering her name. I should Google this. I apologize for the delay. Ah, shucks. How do you pronounce her name? (laughs) Uh, Deb Haaland. She is the US Secretary of the Interior. She is an Indigenous lady. I don't know why... I don't know if Indigenous is an accurate term. Because it would be a lot better if everyone knew the type, the tribe, or the nation that she represented. But that's sadly what we have. Anyway, uh, it says here that history was made in Washington this week, with Deb Haaland becoming being confirmed as the country's first ever indigenous cabinet sec- cabinet secretary. This sixty year old from this sixty year old lady from New Mexico will oversee the country's land, sea, and natural resources, and will also be responsible for tribal affairs. The, the U.S. Senate confirmed the Democrat to the post by a vote of fifty one to forty. Collins secured support of Republican Senators, including Re- Lisa Murkowski, Lindsey Graham, Dan Sullivan and Susan Collins. Okay. Hmm. Part of me feels really happy that she is the first indi- Indigenous US cabinet secretary, but part of me also feels a little sad because it's 2021. Why is this happening now? Like this should have happened at the turn of the century. This should have happened 21 years ago. But even before that, because having read about the level of contribution that all indigenous nations provided to American troops in in the Revolutionary War and in the Civil War as well, I think it's this is long overdue, and that's and that like that connects with this other thing, that, th- this other thing that kind of, um, makes me a little sad, <laughs> but there are so many stories, are, there's just so much that, never mind, let's not dwell on that. <sighs> yeah, this is, this is really good. I'm glad that she has become the first Indigenous U.S. Cabinet Secretary and I hope that under her we will see a lot more improvement to the regulations around natural resources and tribal affairs. Because I feel like there are a lot of stories that we could, that we should learn. Okay, uh, so an example of the top of my head. So when... Uh, people settled settled into California right so the tribal there were tribal nations there and they were for lack of a better word relocated and he's trying to be as polite as possible here but yeah they were relocated with heavy air codes and the state of California also banned controlled burns so a controlled burn is when you have a forest And you light and you set a few trees on fire and you put those fires out as um, as cleanly as possible so so what happened the trees that you are lighting on fire are essentially kindling and burning those trees when in in a season in in a part of the year when forest fires are not that prevalent uh, Helps avoid future forest fires, which could be much larger. I don't know if I explained that properly. I'll go again. <laughs> okay, so the the, tri- the tribal nation that were living in California before the state the area was colonized. What they did was they used to light certain parts of the forest on fire. So what they d- they didn't like set fires willy-nilly they carefully understood and they carefully examined and understood the process and they only chose trees which were uh, very dry and susceptible to forest fires and, sus- and susceptible to uh, extreme heat uh, stuff like that and the reason they did that was because um, if those trees were allowed to stay there and and the possibility of them catching fire and then contributing to a really large forest fire that, like the ones we see nowadays, it would have been prevalent back then. So to avoid that, they did controlled burns. Oh, I apologize for that. Right. So they did controlled burns, and get the forest safe. But when the go- the local government uh, relocated them, like heavy echoes, <laughs> they also banned this practice because the growing state needed all the resources that it could get, right? And dry and firewood was like a valuable resource back then. So, but as we transitioned from firewood to centralized heating and ventilation and everything. We didn't uh, remove the ban. So now we have a century's worth of kindling and that's what's contributing to the forest fires. So I'm hoping that uh, S- Secretary Holland will be able to provide solutions to fix that problem not just in the state of California but in other states as well. So, yeah, <laughs> I was going to do a yay good job. Oh boy. Okay, let's move on to our next story. An Amazonian psychedelic was mooted as a cure for depression. A psychedelic. Okay, so I'll just uh, sh- share the entire story. A psychedelic used in shamanic rituals is to be tried as a treatment for depression. Participants in the UK-based trial will be given DMT, the active ingredient in ayahuasca. I am sure I butchered that, and I sincerely apologize for doing so. I'll try not—I'll <laughs> try to avoid saying that. Okay, so this uh, this ingredient in this particular substance—the substance is a traditional Amazonian plant medicine that is used to bring spiritual enlightenment. Participants will also receive regular therapy because that would be not doing not doing so would be irresponsible. You can't just give people drugs and be like, yeah, you're cured of depression. No, you need to talk to them as well. <laughs> anyway, a small pharma, the company that is running a trial, believes that DMT, also known as the spirit molecule. Could offer a cure for millions of people who don't respond to existing treatments for depression. Hmm. That's interesting. So, apparently, there is a growing body of evidence that suggests that psychedelic drugs, when accompanied by um, therapy sessions, are safe and effective at treating mental health conditions, including addiction, anxiety, and PTSD. Hmm. I mean, it's yeah there there is strong evidence to suggest that but i don't know if it's enough for this product to become ubiquitous and there's also the fact that we will need to replicate um, we will need to replicate the growth of this particular product in a controlled environment which so that we don't have to ruin the amazon rainforest to get this thing but yeah, it's a it's a really good step, I think. Yeah, I I remember reading somewhere that coffee helped. So okay, I should give some provide some. What do you call it? Exposition. Exposition. Right. So before um, before the age of enlightenment, in in Europe, the regular, the most consumed beverage. Was alcohol in some way, shape, or form. And the first, uh, and the Royal Society of London, it started off as, it started off with three people. One of them was Isaac Newton, I think, in a coffee shop outside of Oxford. I could be wrong about this, but yeah, and I'm just sharing what I remember. It's bits and pieces. So, yeah, the argument that that um, paper was trying to make was that coffee, coffee is a stimulant. And, and when an entire society switches from a beverage that um, hampers your critical thinking to a beverage that enhances your critical thinking or enhances your brain activity, it leads to a lot of uh, big changes, right? So uh, ever since we've had, ever since coffee has become the, ever since coffee has become a mainstream beverage, technology and society has been growing and evolving at an exponential rate. But a side effect of that has been how everyone is anxious and uh, paranoid, and there's just a lot of, there's a lot going on, right? So, Now that uh, marijuana and other forms of uh, substances which help people relax and unwind is becoming mainstream, so maybe that might lead to a different form of change. Because it's something new. It doesn't act as an inhibitor. It doesn't act as a stimulant. It acts as something else entirely. I'm forgetting the word for that. But yeah, this this is really good news. I think a lot of people could use it. Especially a lot of people who um, who use a uh, hateful rhetoric. I think I think he could use this. Anyway, let's move on. I am sorry I wasted so much time on that story. I, I liked it. Okay, so let's see what's the next story. Oh, this one. Hmm. So a court ruled uh, a court in Japan. Ruled the nation's gay marriage ban as unconstitutional. So the campaign to legalize gay marriage in Japan was given a boost this week, as a court ruled that the country's ban on the on same-sex mari- same-sex unions is unconstitutional. Japan is the only G7 nations, only G7 nation to not not to fully recognize same-sex partnerships, uh, according to the Sapporo District Court. Uh, Sapporo is a city in Hokkaido. They have a really nice winter festival, is what I learned (laughs) from googling it. Right, according to this uh, district court, this ban violates the nation's constitution, which stipulates that all people are equal. New legislation is required before gay marriages are finally legalized in Japan, but LGBT activists have stated that the ruling was positive news for their campaign. Hmm. And yeah, I'm glad that Japan is doing this because it, it it's it's weird. It's a very weird conversation uh, with respect to when you look at it from a historical perspective. Because Joe's didn't really um, care much about. By by when I say that they didn't really care much, I mean they didn't. Um, advocate for and they didn't condemn uh, same-sex unions because it was a very normal thing to do. There are tons and tons of tri- uh, tribal cultures and historical texts that provide us evidence that same-sex unions both uh, male and female were very uh, very common, well not exactly very common, but yeah, they weren't frowned upon and people didn't uh, lose their minds when whenever they saw that in public, and there were some cultures which, um, which considered it a status symbol of sorts. Like it's something that only rich people or people of um, a higher stature indulge in. I don't know how that works, but I could be wrong about that. But yeah, the general consensus was yeah it's okay we don't really care we have other things to worry about so you do you and this was uh, this was also evident in ancient greece as well where being bi was just normal like being being straight was the weird thing it's it's it, it's fascinating like i would like to see <laughs> <laughs> i would like to see a conversation between A straight man from Mobile, Alabama in 2021 have a conversation with someone who's from ancient Greece. (laughs) Like, you're straight? What is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I I sincerely apologize. I did not mean to say that there is something wrong with being straight. There's nothing wrong. But yeah, this this is good news because now that all G7 nations are approving of this, I think it will motivate other nations to provide similar, uh, similar mechanisms for their, uh, for populations in their nations. Right. And I think there, there might be a lot of uh, people or unions or forms of government, forms of government, what am I saying? <coughs> the TLDR. <laughs> Long story short, I think uh, having seven nations, um, or at least six nations, I don't know if the US no the US doesn't yeah. I don't know. When the US is a weird place. But yeah, having seven uh, seven different frameworks to draw from will help a lot of countries to create their own legislation regarding gay marriages. And that's the other thing. Like it's it's a spectrum, right? So there's there is, there are a lot of different categories to be, uh, to take into consideration. So it's not just gay, okay, there's, there, there's a reason why it's called LGBTQIA+. <sighs> okay, <laughs> I think I spent too much time talking about that, let's move on. Hmm. Okay, so funding was secured for a refugee cookery school in London. A charity that helps refugee chefs integrate into UK society by getting them to share their cuisine with the public is set to open a cookery school in London. It follows a crowdfunding campaign which this week surpassed its one hundred and twenty six thousand pounds target pound target. Uh, before the pandemic, my grateful, oh, my grateful is the name of the cookery school. It's cute, I like it. I think it's the name of the charity. No, it's, it's the cookery school. Okay, <laughs> it's the cookery school, yeah. Now, um, My Grateful uh, ran in-person cookery classes led by refugee and migrant chefs to help them integrate and improve their English, boosting their chances of employment. Now, the charity is preparing to transform a vacant space in Clerkenwell into a cookery school for chefs who have come to the UK to seek a better life. Hmm. That, that last line is kind of telling, I think, but let's finish the story first. Okay, so the crowdfunding campaign was nudged over the line thanks to a 45,000 pound pledge from City Hall. Jules Pipe, the deputy mayor for planning, regeneration and skills, issued a statement. Um, He said, our communities have some fantastic ideas on how to emerge from the pandemic and bring our city together. We are proud to support this project and we look forward to seeing the positive impact it will have on the local community." That's really nice. I like that. I think that's the best uh, tool for diplomacy. Food. God. (laughs) I just had a weird scenario in my head. Like, can you imagine this? The the world's leaders sitting in a room and tensions are running high. And then someone opens a box. (laughs) Someone opens a bento box. (laughs) <laughs> and everyone's like, dude, you have to share. <laughs> and yeah, that's 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 what solves a lot of uh, problems for the world, Just food and sharing. But Okay. Uh, right. Let's come back to the story. This is a really good initiative because again, that's like not only is this is this a really g- great tool for diplomacy, it also helps. Um, It also helps chefs uh, diversify their resume. And right, uh, this thing, I said this was a telling line, right, school for chefs who have come to the UK to seek a better life. The UK I think recently issued a plan to provide citizenships to all of the people in Hong Kong and Hong Kong isn't exactly... what What was the word? How do I describe? okay so it's everyone lives in Hong Kong. By that I mean Hong Kong has a place Hong Kong citizens are originally from different places right No, there are very few nationals, I think. I'm not saying that there aren't any nationals in Hong Kong, but yeah it's it's that kind of a place. it's a it's an international platform of sorts. So I think uh, this is going to benefit the UK as well. And th- I think this is just one of the many ways in which people can solve migrant crises in their respective nations. I remember reading that mm, refugees and migrants were coming in from the Middle East to European nations and a lot of government leaders in those European nations said asked the migrant population to just stay where they are and to not enter the borders and that's just not only is that cruel i, I think it's also very um i, I want to be polite here <laughs> uh, they're not there are better solutions to that one is like cookery schools and other things could be um, i think public um, public workers or just there are so many ways you could integrate a migrant population into into the society of your nation and help them, help yourself and the the migrants as well. But it just takes too much brain, I guess, and people don't want to do that, I don't know. But yeah, I hope that this serves as motivation, or some level of inspiration, even if people are just ripping this off and putting it somewhere else or trying to come up or trying to implement it somewhere else i'll be fine with that as long as the micons are taken care of anyway let's move on to our next oh okay we're done with the stories oh nice uh, i mean there is one story it's about the oscars and how it unveiled its most diverse nominee list ever and i don't know if i want to <laughs> Because okay, so well, I'm glad that these people are getting the recognition that they deserve and the recognition that has been long overdue. It also feels like the academy is like putting again okay, it's it's dipping its toe in this uh, in these waters and then asking for a gold medal for a hundred meters of freestyle like that's not how it works. But then the disparity between how strong the Academy is and how strong society is and the leverage that the Academy has over society. It kind of tilts things in their favors in their favour. So they do receive the recognition. No, so they do receive a lot of applause. But I think they should be met with applause Uh and a little bit of a you know, why is this happening? now. Like this is so late. There there are so many amazing movies directed by or directed by people of colour or people from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds or just people who aren't straight white men that haven't received an Oscar but do, do deserve that. But never mind, let's just focus on. The fact that they finally did something. So, uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so, for the first time, two female directors, Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennel, are in the running for best director. Only five women have been nominated for best director. None of them have won, but oh god, none of them have won, but only five women have been nominated. Nine of the acting nominees are people of color compared to just one in 2020 critics say some biases remain notably smaller budget and notably the smaller budgets that nominated female directors had to work with but the list has been welcomed as a sign of progress Hmm. i mean I i am happy that it's happening but again i still feel like it's this should have happened like 20 years ago anyway let's i have other stories from the past week to cover as well, so let's move on, I'm sorry if I made the entire moon a little negative, that wasn't my intention, I was just a little annoyed, <laughs> it, it, it seems childish, anyway, hmm. oh right, the world's oldest known wild bird was revealed to have hatched a new chick, the world's oldest known banded wild bird hatched a new chick in a wildlife refuge in the North Pacific Ocean, according to a report from the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Wisdom is the name of this albatross, was first identified identified by researchers in nineteen fifty six and it is it has it is believed to have hatched thirty six chicks in her lifetime. She is seventy years old. Wow. Seventy and thirty six chicks in he was there during the second world war damn Asian cast I'm sorry Okay, so the latest hatched in February in the Midway Atoll uh, in the Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge soon after laying the egg in November Wisdom returned to sea to forage and her mate Akia Kamai took over incubation duties. Okay, so the United States Fish and Wildlife Service issued a statement regarding this. They said that Albatross parents share incubation duties uh, and once the chick hatches, they share feeding duties. Hmm, that's interesting. And I'm glad that this bird is still alive. We need, <laughs> we need a lot more biodiversity. It's not just because you know, we need to be able to show this to our kids and not just show them videos and pictures. It's also that they... a lot of the animals they are a part of a system that helps um, keep keep the natural balance of things. So losing them is like losing key components of a well-oiled clock. Yeah, you can oil it, but you're still missing components. It's not going to work properly. There was also the announcement from the UK that they have a right to repair legislation. I I think it's again it's pretty normal. (laughs) I think it's not in the US. I wish it was. I think. but uh, then again, would like, companies agree to it? Okay, so let's cover this. Uh, following on from last week's news about the EU e about the EU law to make electronic goods easier to repair, the UK government has now announced its own legislation. The new rules aim to tackle the so-called premature obsolescence of electrical goods such as fridges, washing ma- refrigerators, washing machines, and TVs. This refers to the short lifespans which are built into appliances by manufacturers forcing customers to buy new ones sooner. The rules include a legal requirement for manufacturers to make spare parts available and the aim is to extend the lifespan of products by up to 10 years and cut carbon emissions from the manufacture manufacture of new goods as well as cutting waste and saving people money. Companies are not going to like that. But yeah, that's that's something that it's fascinating. This to know how we've been exploited so much, and I'm glad that this is happening. I, I hope that this this piece of legislation spreads around the world in different forms. But I hope that all of the, all of the variations that this sprouts in other countries comes down on uh, enforcing this with the same level of intensity because if that if that won't happen then i don't know if uh, if it's going to be effective in any any country because if i'm a company and y- the uk says that i need to provide spare parts and uh, increase the shelf life of my products by 10 years and then this other country is like nah you can do that by you can you don't have to provide spare parts but just increase the shelf life by two years, I could just shift my manufacturing and everything else to that country, right? So I hope that this happens in every country and this legislation passes in every country in some way, shape or form. And I hope that all of them have the same intensity when it comes to uh, enforcing an extended shelf life. Okay, what's next? I don't want to talk about China. <laughs> you shouldn't say that, but Okay, so China installed a new a record number of wind farms in 2020. China has built more than half of the world's new wind power capacity in 2020 according to a, r- a report by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Developers commissioned a ninety-six point three gigawatts. Oh, developers commissioned ninety-six point three gigawatts of wind turbines in twenty twenty, compared to sixty point seven gigawatts in the previous year. The majority of which were onshore installations. This was more than the world's combined wind power growth in twenty nineteen. Hmm. And people are praising the unprecedented growth observed in 2020 and giving the credit to the Chinese wind market, it's not exactly safe to have like, so, again, it's too much of a good thing, right? Because the biggest problem that wind farms create is for birds. And again, we already have a problem with. But there's a solution to this. I, I remember uh, re- I remember reading a, a news article on the Guardian, I think a day or two, I think on Tuesday. Yeah, I think I remember it was Tuesday. So someone, uh, some company has created a new uh, design for, win, uh, for uh, wind turbines, and it doesn't have blades. It looks like one of those, um, what do you call those things? The ones that you see outside car dealerships, that that inflatable rubber thingies. Yeah, it looks like that, and it it vib- <laughs> it vibrates because um, it's still operating. Um, it's still using wind, but in a different way. I, I'm not quite sure how to how it works. But yeah, it doesn't have blades. It's better for the environment. It's it is it does not produce any sort of noise pollution, and uh, it ca- it can be as short as a, I think the shortest height is like around six feet. So it can be six feet short, and you can mount it on highways. You can mount it on the street lamps, lighting highways, so that the wind by the wind that cars generate by going back and forth the highway keeps it in motion all the time and it can be like integrated into the grid right away since you don't need any new infrastructure you just need to connect it to the existing power lines so yeah (laughs) that i'm glad that this made me remember a different positive news story Hmm. what else what else uh i think this is the last story for the day so a scheme that Pampers <laughs> NHS workers reached a thousand box milestone. So there's this thing called Pamparade. It is an initiative that supports NHS workers by sending them boxes of treats. It has reached one. It has sent one thousand boxes since its launch in the first COVID-19 lockdown in 2020. It was launched by Rebecca Broad, who runs Pamparade alongside her full-time job in the charity sector. Businesses donate to the scheme, and businesses donate to the initiative, and which began with hundred boxes being distributed locally near Broad's home in London. They were they were so well received that she continued the project, and now the boxes have gone to scores of NHS hospitals, hospices, GP GP surgeries, and walk-in centres along across the UK. So. What they do so companies donate and the donations go in uh, buying items ranging from beauty products to wellness products, from art to confectionery, and just sweets in general. And they, they pack it in this little box and they send it as a gift to uh, to NHS workers. It helps the recipients take some time out from their stressful jobs. So uh, we have a statement from the lady herself, Mr. Brown, She stated that we didn't want to hang up our pampering gloves and end what we thought was a be- was beneficial to so many people. This is really nice. I really like this. It's it's like it's it's the little things. <laughs> the, I apologize for sounding. Um, I apologize for that cliche, but yeah I think it's really nice because there's i i remember reading about those in the psychological benefits the long term psychological benefits to receiving gifts and feeling feeling like um that if uh, and being rewarded in a sense for your efforts. And an argument can be made that, yeah, these people have their salaries and that salary isn't self-reward for for their services. But considering uh, how much they are paid and taking into account the the amount of work that they do, especially since 2020, I think uh, the Pamper Aid initiative, kind of, I think it bridges the gap that was created between helping them feel... An important part of society, and, and and keeping them from feeling like they are stuck in a thankless job because they're not. That's and it's they've done a lot for people, healthcare workers all over the world, and they still they are still continuing to do so since, especially in the US, um, I think Biden announced that veterinary vets and um, other medical specialists dentists vets and one other occupation i'm forgetting but yeah uh, biden announced that a lot of a lot more people can administer vaccines so healthcare workers are still working like working really long hours and ensuring that society sees an end to this pandemic so this is this is a really good initiative, and I hope that more initiatives are launched in this vein, just to help the people who are working feel um, feel like they they are part of something important, and that the work that they're doing is changing, uh, saving a lot of lives. Uh, improving people's imp- yeah, just improving the world. <laughs> and anyway, I, I've been rambling. I apologize for that. <sighs> okay, I think we are done for the stories for today. I'm done with the stories for today. And I'll try to record a little more frequently because I feel like a week's worth, a week's break is going to it, it causes a lot of problems. Because it causes a lot of problems when I am recording. Because when I sit down, I, I, I get nervous. I start stuttering. I start. I, I keep blocking the mic with my hand, which makes the audio weird. So I get I I I record. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> okay. So I record and then I get comfortable with the mic and speaking for long hours without drinking water or anything. And then I stop for an entire week, and in that week I forget how to do all this. And then I start again. <laughs> so it's it's a, it's Sisyphus' punishment, uh, yeah, it's it's the Sisyphus deal, so I'll try to break that. Anyway, I've been going on for 45 minutes and I'm really thirsty. So that has been our segment, 2 teaspoons of positivity, shucks. <laughs> I would like to thank the one person listening to the to this and I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, happy International Day of Happiness. Thank you so much for tuning in and now I am going to tune out. Bye bye!